Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi listeners, it's Cara McGugan here. I wanted to share an extract from my new book about the infected blood scandal with you. It's called The Poison Line and it's out now. What follows is an extract from Chapter 10. We're with Tom Mull. He's the American lawyer who uncovered how Factor 8 was made and he's in a courtroom in New Orleans. He's about to face the four pharma companies whose product led to the infection and death of his client, Ken Dixon. I hope you find it interesting. The end of the 20th century was approaching, and still, the pharmaceutical companies continued to thwart their accusers, winning virtually every case that went to trial. There were a handful of exceptions that gave Tom a glimmer of hope. In 1997, a jury in Indiana had found Bayer negligent for its use of high-risk donors and its failure to put an AIDS warning on Factor VIII after December 1982. The family received $2 million. In Missouri, a jury awarded another survivor $1.4 million, but the decision was reversed on appeal. Tom, Lorraine and Michael had greater ambitions with their next trial. They wanted a jury to find Alpha Armour, Baxter and Bayer responsible for Ken's HIV infection and wrongful death and by extension get a conclusion for all of their clients. The case opened in November 1998 back in New Orleans with Judge Max Tobias once again presiding. Shirley, Leo and Tyrone were there along with Gary and Karen. The small courtroom was packed, with supporters and lawyers spilling into the hallway. In the five years since Tom had stood before Judge Tobias and litigated for the Cross family, he and his colleagues, who included lawyers from three other practices, had unearthed a catalogue of new evidence. Added to their arsenal since the Cross trial were the adverts from The Advocate, proving pharma companies had purposefully collected plasma from people who had antibodies for hepatitis B. The interviews with inmates from Louisiana State Penitentiary, including Richard Vincent, and the lot records of the Factor VIII that Ken had infused, which they had traced back to infected donors. Tom was feeling confident as he started his hour-long opening address. This is a vial of Factor VIII, said Tom holding up a glass bottle the size of a salt shaker. It looks like cocaine, but it is much more dangerous than cocaine. The evidence will show you that it's deadly, that it kills those who use it. The small vial was worth around $1,000, and it contained the plasma of as many as 40,000 people. Within were all the viruses those people had, including hepatitis and HIV. Tom outlined how the four companies had taken risks with Ken's life. Some of them had collected plasma in prisons and advertised for donors with hepatitis B. 
he alleged they had conspired together to hide the dangers of factor eight, strategized on how to respond to the growing risk of AIDS, perpetuated the message that patients should infuse, 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 rather than switch to cryo or limit their exposure, ignored their own lawyer's advice to add a warning about high-risk donors to factor eight, chosen not to introduce hepatitis B testing, and continued to sell unheated factor eight after a safer version was available. Between them, they had only ever recalled about 1% of factor eight throughout the AIDS crisis. The evidence will show you that the defendants covered it up, said Tom. It was their big secret until recently. And because of that secret, Ken had become infected with HIV. If he had known the dangers of factor eight, he would have switched his treatment like his brother had done. Tyrone doesn't have HIV. Tyrone is going to walk in here, just like you and I walked in here, straight as an arrow, sad, but alive. By 1998, AIDS had become the most common cause of death in people with haemophilia. And the four companies, said Tom, as he pointed to their representatives in turn, were to blame. Kenneth Dixon never had a chance, he added. The companies defended themselves in the way they always had, saying Ken's death was a terrible but unpreventable tragedy. There was no conspiracy because they hadn't known about the dangers of AIDS. By the time Ken became HIV positive in July 1982, according to retrospective tests, just three people with haemophilia had developed a rare form of pneumonia. Philip Beck, lawyer for Alpha, had some astonishing figures that showed how rapid and vicious the spread of HIV through the haemophilia population had been. Tests on frozen blood samples had shown the first infections happened in 1978, when 450 people with haemophilia were positive for the virus. By the end of 1979, 1,300 people had contracted it. The number increased year on year until there were 4,500 cases in 1981. At that point, not a single haemophiliac had come down with symptoms, so they didn't know anybody had the disease, said Beck. By the end of 1982, when the CDC had reported seven cases of AIDS among the 20,000 or so Americans with haemophilia, 7,775 had already contracted HIV. Most of them were infected before anybody knew the disease existed, much less had any way to combat it, Beck concluded. The figures were convincing, thought Tom, but they ignored the fact that the AIDS crisis within the haemophilia population could have been prevented in the first place if the companies hadn't been so blasé about hepatitis. If they had recruited healthy donors rather than those more likely to be carrying bloodborne viruses, and if they had invested in heat treatment a decade earlier. The fault here is with this terrible disease that crept into our blood supply like a thief in the night and infected it before anybody realised what happened, said Bayer's lawyer Terry Tottenham, who had a thick Texan drawl. To think researchers could have prevented the haemophilia AIDS crisis by addressing hepatitis was pure fiction, he explained. For one thing, HIV behaved differently from hepatitis. A positive antibody test was a sign of infection rather than immunity. 
He ignored the fact that both were bloodborne viruses with similar epidemiology. In the 1970s, Tottenham said, the risk of hepatitis had been accepted because of how great the benefits of factor VIII were. Ken's uncle had died at the age of 10 from a tooth extraction because he lived in a time before factor VIII existed. Ken, by comparison, had been able to play basketball and rappel down mountains. The companies all contended that they had their patients in mind when developing the hepatitis B immunoglobulin. Some had tried deactivating hepatitis in factor VIII with little success. As Tom had expected they would, the companies complained that being lumped together in one case was unfair. They weren't an amorphous collective, but separate businesses with competing products. To use the line that had won them so many previous cases, they said Tom and his team could not prove whose factor eight had infected Ken, or when it had done so. Beck explained Alpha had only come into existence in 1978, after people with haemophilia had already been infected with HIV, and that Ken hadn't used its factor eight until he was already HIV positive. Alpha had been the first to say it would screen high-risk donors, but it had caused uproar. Congressmen made speeches on the floor of the House of Representatives condemning us because we were discriminating against homosexuals, claimed Beck. The American Civil Liberties Union threatened to sue us. Doctors' groups said we were overreacting. In his research, Tom had found infected donors would have been more than willing to screen themselves out. Baxter's lawyer, Charles Albert, said Ken had infused its product on only two occasions and that it had been the first company to introduce heat treatment and add an AIDS warning to its product back in December 1983. Armour's legal team said Ken had not infused its factor eight until 1984, two years after he contracted HIV, and by which time its packaging contained a warning about the AIDS risk. Bayer's lawyer, Tottenham, said it hadn't collected plasma in Los Angeles, San Francisco or Miami, and it had complied with every FDA regulation. But Tom could come back against all four of them with ease. Alpha was responsible for most of the ads calling for donors with hepatitis B. Baxter was the main company to use blood from Angola. Armour kept selling its defective heat-treated factor eight after Dr. Prince had found it contained traces of live HIV, and Bayer had lied about collecting blood in prisons. With the assuredness of someone who's undeniably right, Tom called one of his star witnesses, Dr. Kay Noel. She was nervous as she took the stand, seeing those on the farmer side of the courtroom stir at her public betrayal of them. Although she felt ready to share the things she had seen inside Alpha, she was facing people who considered her a traitor, who had made her feel ostracised. Dr. Noel steeled herself by thinking back to the nonchalance of her colleagues how none of them had cared about the hazards of non-anon B hepatitis. But no sooner was she sworn in than her efforts were frustrated. Tom asked Dr. Noel a question, and the lawyers from the pharma side objected. Over and over, the companies intervened before she could answer. Judge Tobias upheld their objections. Dr. Noel had wanted to tell her story, but was restricted to sharing technical scientific details. By the end of a dispiriting day on the stand, she felt as if she had done little more than share her name. 
The continuous objections from the pharma company's lawyers began to frustrate the jury. Amid devastating testimonies from Leo, Shirley and Tyrone, the legal wranglings appeared callous. Tom hoped the jury would see how flagrantly irresponsible these companies were and just how unwilling they were to accept any responsibility for fatally infecting Ken. The open hostility and invective from both sides made the case feel more like a bar and brawl than a trial. More than once, in the hallway outside the courtroom, Gary had to separate Tom from the opposing lawyers after he found them pushing and shoving one another. Tom and Michael thought their adversaries, whom they had been fighting for years, were arrogant and aggressive. On the final day of hearings in December, before proceedings were adjourned for the holidays, Tom leant over to Michael and said, Watch me shove a Christmas tree up Phil Beck's arse. He stood up and presented evidence that Alpha had used recovered plasma from a sexual health clinic in a batch of its Factor Eight, which it had denied doing. Tom and Michael watched Beck storm down the hallway as the day finished. They knew they had him. Tom's turn to become incensed came when Dr. Louis Allardort, the leading haematologist from New York, took the stand in defence of the pharma companies. Tom had a particular gripe with Dr. Allardort for having turned so completely on his patients, testifying against them in virtually every court case and earning tens of thousands of dollars for the privilege. The company said Dr. Allardort had advised them back in the early 1980s to ditch plasma only if they discovered it was contaminated before they had made Factor Eight with it. If it was already in the product, he told them, they should not recall it, because he was concerned about a lack of supply. In 1983, he stepped down as medical director of the National Haemophilia Foundation after his peers disagreed with this view. Following FDA rules and Dr. Allardort's advice, the companies had only recalled batches of Factor Eight when doctors reported that a donor had died from AIDS-related illness. Dr. Allardort had stepped down as head of haemophilia care at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York years earlier, a move he had always said was a personal choice. But Tom had new evidence for this trial. He had found a letter from the president of the hospital that said Dr. Allardort was removed because of his alleged conflicts of interest in receiving research money from pharma companies and numerous investigations into him, including one by the New York Attorney General of which he was found not guilty. As Tom questioned Dr. Allardort about this, the doctor was obstinate. The letter proved nothing. Tom became increasingly angry and eventually paced to the back of the courtroom, turning his back on Dr. Allardort while questioning him. Judge Tobias sanctioned Tom. I understand the emotions in this case, believe me, he said. The histrionics, the jury has seen it. This ain't television. There's no camera in the courtroom. I'm not Judge Judy. I'm just a little bitty judge gaining weight, not that little, sitting down here in a little southern town on the banks of the Mississippi River just trying to make a living. Sir, I accept your criticism, said Tom. It was unprofessional. I would apologise to everyone in the courtroom, except Dr. Allardort. That's inappropriate right there, said Judge Tobias. That's a contempt. 25 bucks payable to the Judicial Expense Fund. Tom was so angry with Dr. Allardort, he would have paid $1,000. For Leo and Shirley, 
It was something else Dr. Allardort told Tom that was more ruinous. Virtually all, if not all of the Factor 8 manufactured and available for sale in 1982 and 1983 was infected with the HIV virus. Is that correct? asked Tom. Highly likely, replied Dr. Allardort. More likely than not? pressed Tom. Yes, said Dr. Allardort. Highly likely to be all infected. Every single little vial of white powder that had been injected into Ken's veins was infected with HIV and hepatitis C after 1982. Leo went into the trial wanting the companies to admit they had done wrong. And here, Dr. Allardort had given him the final conclusion he needed. They knew it was all infected, but they kept pushing it, says Leo. Over 90% of US patients with severe haemophilia who had infused Factor VIII from 1982 to 1983 had contracted HIV, said Dr. Allardort. By 1999, when he was on the stand, more than half had developed AIDS and around a third had died. I took care of these people my whole life, he said. I took care of them from the day they were born, hundreds and hundreds of them. This great tragedy killed my children. Like other haemophilia doctors, he spoke of his patients as though they were family. But Tom didn't buy the expression of regret. Dr. Allardort had testified against patients in cases up and down the country for over a decade. Now he had a chance to put it right, to admit he knew Factor VIII was defective. But Dr. Allardort refused to be drawn, because saying the product was defective would have implied the companies were at fault. You're stating that a product that is contaminated with the virus that causes AIDS and death is not defective, said Tom. Defective means that it doesn't work, said Dr. Allardort. It worked. It was effective. However, there was a tragic, horrible thing that happened. It had viruses in it. Tom and Michael were certain they could prove Ken's death wasn't just a tragic accident. The companies had taken risks with dangerous donors fraudulently misrepresented their products and failed to make them safe. It was time to present the adverts from the advocate. On seeing them, Dr Don Francis, formerly of the CDC, said he would have gone straight to the Surgeon General and the head of the FDA to report the companies had he known they were targeting high-risk donors at the time. And he would have advised patients to return to cryo. But the real concession came from one of the company's key witnesses. Dr. Meyer, head of blood products at the FDA. Dr. Meyer had always maintained he had done a good job of regulating the companies as AIDS emerged, but his perspective changed when confronted with this new evidence. As Tom showed Dr. Meyer one advert after another, reading out the details of plasma centres that called for donors to help develop the anti-hepatitis vaccine and make it pay as much as $650 extra each month, Dr. Mayer was visibly shocked, his mouth falling open. Do you think it would have been good manufacturing practice for the defendant pharmaceutical companies to target, advertise and solicit plasma from high-risk gay men for use in the production of Factor VIII as late as the 6th of December 1982? asked Tom. No, I don't think that would have been good practice, said Dr. Mayer. Had I been aware of it, it might have led to discussion as to whether this could be construed as a violation, 
with regards to safety. Trying to defend themselves, the companies turned on the FDA, saying they had followed its regulations at all times and any delays were because it had been slow to make recommendations. From Skid Row to prisons, their plasma centre had licences, they said, and they had stopped collecting in prisons long before the FDA mandated it. Some delays were out of their hands as they waited for guidance and approval from the regulator, which hadn't wanted to spark a plasma shortage. Beck said Alpha had requested approval for an AIDS warning for its Factor 8 in May 1983, but the regulator had rejected its request, saying there wasn't enough evidence. Baxter said it had applied for a licence for its heat-treated Factor 8 in June 1982, before the first cases emerged, and the FDA had taken nine months to grant it. But Tom wasn't going to let them get away with pushing the blame back onto the FDA. How could the regulator have made an informed decision about the safety of Factor 8 when the companies had neglected to tell it about their dangerous plasma collection practices? Dr. Mayer had been shocked by both the adverts in The Advocate and the details of the plasma centre in Angola, and he had accused Alpha, Baxter and Bayer of lying to the FDA, which amounted to negligence. Armour was exempt from this claim because it hadn't recruited high-risk donors. For the kicker, Michael revealed the thousands of dangerous donations Ken had infused. The hottest lot was from Alpha, which contained plasma from nearly 2,000 donors at Irwin Memorial Blood Bank in San Francisco, one of the hotbeds of the early AIDS crisis. Around a third of those donors were gay and a significant proportion had HIV. Ken had injected himself with their plasma in June 1982. Hearing all this evidence, Ken's local paediatrician, Dr Charles Hamilton, said he would have stopped treating Ken with Factor VIII and moved him on to cryo had he known where the plasma for his treatment was coming from and how many donations went into each batch. In the last week of the trial, Tom played his interview with Richard Vincent. From inside Angola, Richard described how inmates had used the plasma centre to have sex and inject drugs how they had been in charge of running the plasmapheresis machines and choosing who could donate, and how the screening process had allowed people with infectious diseases to sell their plasma. Summing up, Tom told the jury Ken had experienced death by a thousand cuts. Each time he had infused Factor VIII, he was reinfecting himself with HIV. By 1983, Dr Allardot had said, it was highly likely every batch of Factor VIII from the four companies was contaminated. Had Ken not compounded his initial infection, he may have survived beyond 1995, when the first treatments for AIDS became available. Tom urged the jury to therefore find all the companies, not just one, responsible for Ken's death. A miracle drug turned into an unmerciful killer, said James Orr, a lawyer who worked with Tom. 80% of people who took the miracle drug are either dead, HIV-infected, or have AIDS. The case drew to a close in March 1999, following four months of hearings. The jury concluded Cutter and Alpha had been negligent in their manufacture of Factor VIII. They had both made unreasonably dangerous products, then fraudulently misrepresented their safety which had caused Ken's death. 
the Dixon family should receive $35 million in compensation, increased to $56 million when the length of the lawsuit was taken into account. The record sum showed just how high the true damages for people with haemophilia were and why so many courts had been reluctant to take on these cases. Leo and Shirley hugged one another, expressing sheer relief and a rare kind of happiness, given everything that had happened. The truth had won out, not just for their family, but for everyone with haemophilia. Having weathered many setbacks and losses, the community finally had reason to celebrate. This was a proper and unequivocal victory. But the Dixon family never received that $56 million. Because, after the jury had given its verdict and left the courthouse, Judge Tobias had his own decision to deliver. He opened an envelope and read from a piece of paper. He was overruling the jury's verdict because the statute of limitations had expired. The case should have been filed within a year of Ken contracting HIV, he said. Given that a finding of fraud can negate the statute of limitations in Louisiana, Tom was utterly exasperated and then furious. It was a pattern they had seen across the country that played right into the pharma industry's hands. Back in the mid-1980s, when doctors had disclosed their clients' infections, the companies had claimed antibodies to HTLV3 might be a positive thing, a sign patients were protected against AIDS. By the time they became fatally ill and the truth was clear, the statute of limitations had expired. In one fell swoop, Judge Tobias blocked Tom from bringing any more of his cases to court. Leo and Shirley appealed the decision, but before the Louisiana Supreme Court had a chance to rule, they had accepted a seven-figure settlement from Alpha, Armour, Baxter and Bayer, which would help make life more comfortable for their surviving family. For them, it had never been about the money. No amount could heal their family's wounds. Leo just wanted the truth of how Ken died. The jury's finding of responsibility was the ultimate victory, albeit a partial one. The ordeal had been gruelling for the Dixons. Disgusted by what he had seen in court, Tyrone stopped taking his Factor 9 for a time. Three years later, in 2002, he needed a tooth extracted and the doctor couldn't stop him from bleeding. Following so many before him, Tyrone died from loss of blood, leaving his parents grief-stricken and childless. Within a decade, Shirley had passed away from complications caused by diabetes, brought on partly by the stress of losing her two sons. Having served in Vietnam as a machine gunner in the infantry, Leo thought he had seen his worst days long ago. That was until the AIDS crisis hit. In 17 years, he went from sitting around the dining room table with his three happy family members to eating alone. Leo lives with PTSD, still waking up with night sweats and flashbacks. Sometimes he dreams of the dirt in Vietnam. At other times, of his sons, Ken and Tyrone. Yet he still has a broad, welcoming smile and the comfort of his religion. My purpose is to be the best person I can and to help any and all people whenever I have the opportunity, he says. Tom, Lorraine and Michael were determined not to let their efforts go to waste. Judge Tobias might have thrown their case out, 
but they wouldn't let that detract from the victory. A jury had agreed that Bayer and Alpha were responsible for Ken's wrongful death, and so they set in motion a plan to get justice for every single one of their remaining clients. Thank you for listening. You can buy The Poison Line in hardback at a discounted price from books.telegraph.co.uk. It's also available in audiobook and ebook wherever you buy your books. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.